you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the one and only podcast in the world celebrating helicopter explosions in films. Ever since Batman started fighting crime back in 1939, his story has been retold, restyled and rebooted multiple times. So when everyone decided that Tim Burton's conception of the Cape Crusader was, well, just a little too dark, Joel Schumacher was brought in to bring some light to Gotham's dark shadows. So on this show, we're looking at 1995's Batman Forever. To help me discuss the film, I'm joined by the boy wonder to my Dark Knight. He squeezed himself into some luridly coloured lycra, strapped on his utility belt, and slid down the bat pole into my virtual bat cave of a podcast. It's Troy Allen from the Action A Go Go website. Welcome to the show, Troy. You should have prepared me for that one. <laughs> but you know, this is perfect. We're, we're talking about Batman Forever, so a little, little homoeroticism is okay. <laughs> Well, this is a family show, so uh, yeah, I don't, I don't mind a light sprinkling, but uh, let's not uh, let's not make it get too serious. No, no, we'll keep it clean. <laughs> so, Troy, do you want to take a moment to tell people about what they can find at Action A Go Go? So, uh, back in 2010, editor in chief Derek Scarzella and I just realized that uh, there weren't really a lot of film sites that were zeroing in on. Uh, the action genre. Like, you know, people are covering, like, broadly covering sci-fi and superheroes and stuff like that. But we really want to do, like, a deeper dive into, like, what makes good action, what makes bad action, like, you know, the, the merits of the genre itself and how broad it can be. The way that we look at it is anything that where the conflict is resolved through choreographed violence is an action film. So that can be anything from Star Wars to, uh, you know, Batman to Indiana Jones to James Bond to, you know, Bruce Lee to Jackie Chan, you know, all sorts of stuff. But we really wanted to just kind of like highlight that stuff a bit more because we kind of got the impression that a lot of critics were very dismissive of the genre. You know, clearly people love this stuff because we pay through the nose every summer for them. We uh, update on a daily basis and uh, we'll do reviews. We'll pull out new finds. We do interviews with actors and directors like, you know, it's a small site, but we uh, we, go, we try to go big because it's it's the action genre. So action to go go dot com. Before we uh, look at Batman Forever, though, I always like to find out if my guests have seen anything interesting lately that they want to recommend or tell people to avoid. So, Troy, have you got anything that you want to mention? Speaking of uh, action movies, I actually saw, I'm probably going to botch the uh, the title of this, Scout's Guide to the Zombie Apocalypse. And it was actually really cool. Like, I, I, there used to be this term called the, uh, uh, like, a boys film if that makes any sense to you. And it was a term that was kind of coined by uh, Steven Spielberg. I've heard him mention it the most, which is just kind of like the stuff he did in regards to E.T. and Goonies. Um, and this is very much like that. It's, it's that type of film. It's very much about just a bunch of guy, a bunch of boys, they're teenagers, who get into like this ridiculous situation that's weighing over their head and they have to save you know, their town, the world, the universe, whatever you want to call it. Outside of that, I have to say that the film Creed, the new Rocky movie, it was actually really good. And uh, I'm glad to see that a lot of people are acknowledging that it was really good. I felt like the last movie, Rocky Balboa, which was also, I thought, really good, didn't get a lot of love, especially from critics and at the box office. But I feel like both films, both Rocky Balboa and Creed, are nice, like, uh, like kind of closing statements on the Rocky mythos. 
Yeah, it's definitely a film that I've heard good things about so far. And it's uh, interesting that um, it seems sort of obviously Stallone is in a supporting role in that film and he, he's not directing this one. And mm-hmm. I wonder, um, as you were saying, like Rocky Balboa was uh, a really solid film. It was actually a much better film than I think some of the critics kind of gave it uh, credit for. And I wonder if the fact that sort of Stallone isn't helming this film and I don't know, did, did Stallone have a hand in the script for this or not or did he leave it alone I feel like Stallone directed Rocky Balboa he did direct Rocky Balboa I'm wondering did he have a hand in writing the script for Creed oh okay got you um no actually uh, it came from the director uh I'm probably about his name Ryan Coogler yeah, because I'm wondering if the fact that sort of Stallone had less involvement sort of then almost gives the critics permission to like the film a bit more than they might do if it said directed or written by Sylvester Stallone on it. No, actually, I think you might be onto something there. I, like, I've noticed that when Stallone does okay, the critics like to pile on him. <laughs> <laughs> and when Stallone does really good, like they have to grit their teeth and like admit that he did a good job. I feel like that's kind of like how his entire career has been. Um, he's always been the underdog and people always kind of like gloss over him and his body of work. But the guy is I, I honestly feel Stallone's kind of an inspiration. I totally agree because Sylvester Stallone, you know, has maintained, you know, a Hollywood career for 40 years. And you don't do that, not just as an actor, but in his case, also as a as a writer, producer and director. And you don't do that if you don't have something about you, either in terms of like a really prodigious work ethic you know and i think probably that which i think stallone does have but i think probably the thing that is underappreciated with with stallone is an ability to sort of tap into ordinary characters or working class characters that kind of appeal on a mass audience level and it's not terribly sort of sophisticated fare, but it's stuff that is really popular and there's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about that. And I, th- I think sort of Stallone perhaps doesn't get enough credit for actually being able to make films and produce characters that people like and find interesting. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, honestly, uh, I feel like that's kind of both of what we're, you and I are trying to accomplish with Exploding Helicopter and Action to Go-Go is to highlight that. Like, you know, like this has merit that I think needs to be applauded. OK, thanks. Right. It's time to get stuck into Batman Forever. So take it away, Trailer Man. In an uncertain world, in a chaotic time, justice wears a mask. Love is a game. Power is a machine. And revenge is a trap. Courage now. Truth always. Batman forever. Batman Forever came out in 1995. It was the third big screen bat adventure after Tim Burton successfully brought the character back to the cinema screen. The story sees the caped crime fighter pitted against the terrible twin threat of Two-Face and the Riddler. The dastardly duo team up with a plan to take over Gotham and destroy it using a mind control device hidden in television screens. The film was directed by Joel Schumacher who made Phone Booth, Flatliners and Falling Down. Replacing Michael Keaton as Batman we have Val Kilmer 
Connor. And in the role of the Riddler, we have the rubbery-faced Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones as the coin-tossing Two-Face. The film also saw the introduction of Robin in the form of uh, Chris O'Donnell and the return of Michael Goff as Bruce Wayne's butler, Alfred. So, Troy, what did you make of Batman Forever? What did you think was good and what did you think perhaps didn't work so well? I want to point out, first of all, that all the criticisms against her are valid. I understand why people don't like it. People hate the bat nipples, but I kind of feel like bat nipples have become shorthand for just like not actually giving the film a fair view. And like, yeah, it's a little campy, but at the same time, I think that like, even at this point, Batman had been around for decades and he had existed in various incarnations on, you know, the small screen, the big screen, like, you know, in comics, of course. And I feel like there's room for them to at least pay homage to the Batman, the 66 Batman, like the Adam West stuff, or even the really colorful early uh, Bill Finger, Bob Kane stuff uh, from the 40s. I think this film does that really well. In addition to that, I think that he does, I think this is probably one of the few films where Batman does actually do detective work, which is kind of like, (laughs) I mean, considering that he's the Dark Knight detective, like none of the other films in the series really delve that much into it. And also, because it's me and, you know, we do, I do action to go-go, this is actually the first film, and probably still the only film, where I feel like Batman actually fights people and is actually, like, has well-choreographed fights. And I think that has a lot to do with the costume, which is something I kind of want to talk about as well. Well, I uh, have to agree with some of the points you made about this this particular film, because as, as you were saying, the the flaws of it are fairly obvious. There's a lot of overacting in this film. There's also some actors in this film who just don't seem as if they are acting at all. The, <laughs> you know, but to its credit, it is, you know, it's really bold, it's brash, and for a sort of Batman film set in Gotham is actually sort of pretty colourful and there's there's a riot of action sort of going on. Although the sort of the flip side of that is that it does feel a bit like a infant just sort of hammering away on a tin drum for two solid hours. There's <laughs> there's not very much sort of room to breathe. I'll be the first to admit that like yeah, the, the criticisms that people weighed against it are are totally valid. It does operate at a breakneck pace. But to make excuses for it, I think that if we're really looking at this from perspective, Joel Schumacher wanted to create the 60s TV show. It kind of makes sense that they would do it this way. And uh, one of the things that we talked about previously to this and uh, by email is that Batman has been around for 75 plus years. And I think that allows room for interpretation that you necessarily can't do right now with the Marvel characters, uh, because the Marvel characters have not been given as many media tie-ins to expand on their mythos the way that Batman has. I also want to point out one of the other strengths of this is you mentioned like that it does operate at breakneck breakneck pace and that you really aren't given room to breathe. But I do want to point out that like a lot of the character motivations and the breaks for those character motivations are pretty spot on. They tie a lot of Bruce Wayne's arc back to the death of his parents. You know, there's a huge like psychology like subplot uh, with uh, Nicole Kidman's character, Chase Meridian. That like really plays off plays off of that, and like I think personally puts you on Batman's side. You mentioned some of the themes of psychology in this film, and there's definitely a an idea in this film, sort of looking at um, duality, different personas, sort of within one person. And you obviously you have that with Batman, you have that with both the Two Face and the Riddler character. And you know, I thought that was a really interesting aspect to have in the film. But I I felt perhaps a bit sort of differently to you that they didn't really 
make as much of that as they could and apparently the sort of the original edit of this film was two hours 40 obviously the final cut is just over two hours and so I wonder if some of that is fleshing out those aspects of the plot I didn't know about the two hour and 40 minute cut I'm actually very curious now what that is Uh, but stories used to be a lot more economical in terms of like how you move through the plot, uh, which is something I kind of miss and something I kind of appreciate about this because at the end of the day, I can watch this film and see what they're hinting at. And it's not being weighed down with, you know, Christopher Nolan levels of, (laughs) of of like, you know, uh, of character examination that like, you know, it's a thin line. Like you on one person, on one side, you have, uh, this film, which is like just suggesting this duality theme. And on the other, on the flip side, you have a Christopher Nolan film, which would probably be hammering that on point over and over again for three hours. So let's talk about the choice of Joel Schumacher to direct this film. At the time, people thought that Batman just couldn't work without anybody other than Tim Burton, who, you know, had such a sort of strong individual style as a director and, and brought that to the two films that he directed. So, yeah, what did you make of the choice of Schumacher here to direct this? Well, I like I understand why they chose Schumacher. A, he's kind of like a, a what do you call it, a journeyman director. His style changes from film to film. And as a major studio, I can understand why you're like, okay, we need a kind of a work for hire, a hired gun to like jump in here and give us the Batman that we need. And uh, the reason I say the Batman that they need is because the problem with the Tim Burton films, especially after Batman Returns, was that it was not kid friendly. But Warner Brothers really wanted a kid friendly Batman film. And the first film was dark, even though people showed up for it in droves. And the second film is like, you know, it's nihilistic and it's kind of fetish, you know, it's got a, like a kind of like a fetish thing going for it and like all this other stuff. But this film, you know, they wanted to open it up to kids. And I, you know, in 1995, I was like 14 years old. <laughs> so I remember the Batman mugs from McDonald's and like all of the, the insane media tie-ins, which is what they were shooting for. I think that like Schumacher was able to provide that form and much in the way that Tim Burton was never going to be able to do. And so I don't have anything wrong. I don't have anything against journeyman directors. I think they serve a purpose. Not everyone has to be an auteur uh, that has like a, a visual style and, you know, theme that follows them from film to film. But I think that Schumacher kind of gets a bad rep because of mostly more because of Batman and Robin. But because of his work on the Batman film, because previous to this, Schumacher made a lot of actually really solid films. Even after this, he made that Colin Farrell movie, Phone Boots, which was actually a pretty decent thriller, I thought. You know, he also did Falling Down, which is like kind of like this great, like just sort of like psychological thriller about like this guy who just goes postal. And of course, he did Lost Boys, which I think might have been the film that got him this film um, because it's a little bit more gothic. He's got a couple of films on his CV, which sort of speak to the sort of tone that he would be called upon to employ in this film. So I think Lost Boys is one. I think Flatliners perhaps is another one. But yeah, as you were saying, he's he's got a really a schizophrenic is too strong a word. But yeah, <laughs> you know, he's got things like The Client, you know, we're really, yeah. you know, big Hollywood, you know, summer movie, things like St. Elmo's Fire. Um, and then then, as you say, he's got things like Falling Down and Eight Millimeter, like really sort of dark films, which are looking at the sort of seedy underbelly of polite society. So these got he sort of really sort of jumps around but you know he's clearly somebody who can you know creates you know who can create a style that will fit with the material that he's working with he's not whereas i think if you so 
somebody like Tim Burton, and this is not to sort of take anything away from him as a director, but Tim Burton films tend to look like Tim Burton films, whereas Joel Schumacher films, they usually look good, but they don't necessarily look the same. And I think you're right to sort of suggest that that might have been one of the reasons why the studios uh, sort of plumped for him, because they knew he's somebody who could produce this sort of stuff, but he could produce the stuff in line with what they wanted rather than his own artistic vision. Mm -hmm. So what did you make of then of the actual job that Schumacher does here? Obviously, he was sort of replacing Burton, who had made Batman Returns, a very dark film. So I think Schumacher was sort of under orders to lighten the tone. So what do you think he sort of brought to the film? If anything, I, you know what it is? This is what it is. Schumacher's attention to detail goes beyond just the costumes, which are, which are, which is great, and the set design, but also like how he can maneuver through these characters, which in all honesty is probably something that you can see from film to film with him if you're looking at something like Falling Down or Time to Kill, what motivates these characters and what gets them working. And I ultimately feel that Tim Burton was never really all that concerned about that, especially when you look at the first Batman and to another, to a small extent, Batman Returns, even though they kind of open up a little bit in terms of what motivates Bruce and like his loneliness. Loneliness is a huge place in a lot into uh, Batman and Batman Returns, but with Schumacher, it's all about the character motivations and tapping into that. And I think he was also more interested in tapping into the source material. Mind you, it's not the source material I think everybody loves, because I think most people would rather like a director pull from The Dark Knight Returns and the Frank Miller stuff. But he pulled from the Bill Finger Bob Kane stuff, which is the original Batman. And I, I, you know, I have to commend that. Like, I think that's really cool that he did that. He gave us something a little different. And I feel that Batman Forever would have been a cool movie if it was a one-off. Unfortunately, they made a sequel that just kind of compounded things because this movie was incredibly successful. I think that's the other thing people forget about. So clearly people liked it in 1995. They just got sick of it by the time Batman and Robin came out. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's Schumacher's big contribution here is he, di- he dives into the characters. You touch on something there. I think the, the shadow of Batman and Robin may harm people's thoughts on Batman Forever now because that film... It was uh, pretty critically pounded at the time, although I I watched it and I found it quite enjoyably entertaining. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say it was a great movie, but, you know, you can see the style that he is doing in Batman Forever. He then goes to complete town with it in uh, yeah. in Batman and Robin. So uh, and I think it's I think it's kind of being a victim of your own success in that regard. He did this cool thing. Critics liked it. Audiences liked it with Batman Forever. And then, like, Warner Brothers did what a lot of Hollywood studios do. They go, give us more. Just everything. Times ten. (laughs) And, you know, and, like, he did it, and he got penalized. And, yeah, he is a victim of his own success. But I think that, you know, to your original question, Schumacher's best contribution is that, like, he, he paid attention to a lot of details. It's not necessarily the details that people unanimously love about Batman, but he dove into the details and produced something that was really stylistic and fun and, and actually kind of funny, even though it's really corny at times. So this film introduced us to a new Batman in the shape of Val Kilmer. How do you take to him in the role? I think that Kilmer, even still to me, is kind of an odd choice. I like what he accomplishes with the character, and I think that has a lot to do going back to the, them diving into the duality and the character motivation. But I don't know if I can necessarily credit that to Kilmer. I like his Bruce Wayne. I like that he's at least a little bit savvy and kind of, uh, he has like kind of like a playboy demeanor, but he's not an uh, obnoxious jerk, (laughs) you know, like some of the other interpretations of Bruce Wayne. 
And I like his Batman because Batman, he's not the goofy, gravelly voiced Batman that Christian Bale gave us, <laughs> you know, which personally for me kind of <laughs> always takes me out of the movie, which is another problem I've had with the Christopher Nolan films. Every actor that plays Batman uh, is compelled, rightfully compelled to use like a voice when they're in the costume, right? Which is something that no other, uh, none of the other superheroes really do. <laughs> like, you know, like Spider-Man sounds like Peter Parker, <laughs> you know. Tony Stark sounds like Iron Man, but... Where has that come from? I don't know, actually. That's actually Who started that? I, I think it was Michael Keaton. <laughs> like, I really think Michael Keaton started that. Because I, I don't... I can't accuse Adam West of ever doing that. And any of the other cartoon versions, I don't think have ever done that. Um, Kevin Conroy, of course, did it famously. And I think Kevin Conroy sounds the most like every version of Batman. But uh, I think that, like, yeah, that knee-jerk reaction to, like, use a gravelly voice can easily take you out of like any time an actor's in costume and i think that val kilmer actually pulls it off like he's kind of very quiet but deep batman voice and honestly batman probably shouldn't talk too much anyway <laughs> so, so yeah it's, it's a he's a he's an odd choice but so is michael keaton well i'm quite surprised by your thoughts on val kilmer because i thought that his his performance as batman is, is fine he's you know, doing the voice and you just have to be quite serious and that pretty much is enough to play Batman. But I found sort of Val Kilmer as Bruce Wayne. I found that part of his performance really wooden and really flat. And it, it was, it was in some scenes, it was almost as if he was bored and he almost becomes a bit of a sort of non character in this film. So, well, it's, I, it's, there's, again, it's, there's so many interpretations of Bruce Wayne, like, uh, Kevin Conroy kind of had the cocky, you know, super arrogant Bruce Wayne in the animated series. Um, Michael Keaton, I think, is still my favorite Bruce Wayne, just because he's just kind of like this awkward kid, <laughs> like all the time, which I think is a lot of Tim Burton projecting. But at the same time, it makes a lot of sense to me. You know, I, I appreciated uh, Christian Bale's version, which is also kind of a variation on the arrogance, but we don't get a lot of that after Batman Begins. Kilmer's Bruce Wayne is like really restrained and kind of like pent up and which makes a lot of sense to me like he's just like this victim of of, like a traumatic experience so everything he says is kind of like distant and I think that the thing that helps that to me anyway is that at the very least they're exploring the duality of that character with Val Kilmer in that role so I, I guess I'm being more forgiving for it because of the way the character's written as opposed to the, uh, to the performance. So let's talk about the sort of villains now. And after seeing the Joker and the Penguin in previous outings, we have the sort of two other big villains from the, the comics brought in with Jim Carrey's Riddler and Tommy Lee Jones's Two-Face. I don't know what you thought about it, but it seemed to me as if they were both giving very similar performances. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, again, that's fair. You know, uh, Jim Carrey's channeling Frank Gorshin from the 60s TV show. And... I'm okay with that. And Tommy Lee Jones, like, there was no other interpretation of Two-Face previous to this. So I think he kind of was just kind of ripping off of, like, a Jack Nicholson type of thing. But, again, I, I, I'm totally okay with it. Like, I feel like their motivations are pretty spot on. The characters are the characters. They, 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 there's a little bit of wiggle room with the Riddler. But at the same time, uh, I think the biggest problem here is that this film birthed the two-villain thing. It made, it made the two-villain superhero movie thing a thing. Like, Batman Returns was kind of, I guess, like, a was a fluke in that regard. They just kind of doubled down. But after Batman Forever, it became a pattern. 
And so for that reason, uh, we can kind of blame Batman forever for Spider-Man three. <laughs> <laughs> we can blame, Sp- we can blame, uh, Batman forever for Iron Man two <laughs> <laughs> and so on and so on. But yeah, you know, cause like, what's the saying? Like, uh, you know, the first time it happens is a coincidence. So I say Batman Returns, that was a coincidence where you had two villains. But now Batman Forever becomes a pattern, and Hollywood loves their patterns. And they love to follow, follow like, the last thing that happened. And so we're kind of still stuck in that cycle, unfortunately. But yeah, I like, you know, Jim Carrey was hot at the time. I think he had just came off of Ace Ventura. I think this might have been the first film where he scored $20 million, which was, like, a huge freaking deal in 1995. And, you know, Jim Carrey's, Jim Carrey's always entertaining because he gives 100% no matter what he does. And Tommy Lee Jones, his dismissive nature is always amusing. And, like, there's rare instances in this film where he is allowed to be dismissive because he's standing alongside Jim Carrey, which allows him to kind of be, in a weird way, one of them's a straight man. And one of them's like the, uh, they're doing kind of like a weird Abbott and Costello thing, you know? And I, I kind of enjoy that stuff about them. When they play off of each other, like, they kind of make more sense. See, I found the way they interacted, it all became a little bit too much with me. I, I started to feel like enough with the shouting because, <laughs> um, you know, they're both giving very over-the-top performances. I think Jim Carrey's is better. I think there's there's some more sort of nuance within his performance than in Tommy Lee Jones, who feels pretty one note and his performance almost in parts of the film just reduces to him just going kind of you know ah, 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 you know uh, <laughs> as he kind of like sort of maniacally laughs to himself and i found that uh, the pair of them sort of working together it just was a bit overkill no well you know actually you might be tapping into something in regards to uh carrie because Carrie's actually the only one who's actually given like time to have an origin story besides robin and so you kind of see him uh, I was going to say mature, but that's not what it is. <laughs> like you kind of see him turn into this, this, this mustache twisting villain, like this Frank Gorshin Riddler character. Tommy Lee Jones, you don't get that at all. Tommy Lee Jones hits the ground running as like, yeah, like he said, this <laughs> you know, type of character, which I think is probably the most accurate description of his performance. <laughs> The only origin that we see for Tommy Lee Jones's character is is a sort of five seconds of an old news clip that yeah. is sort of on in a TV in, in the background. And yeah. going back to the point that we were sort of talking about the length of this film and what was cut out, like I, f- I found it, the beginning of this film, I found it quite jarring because suddenly there's Tommy Lee Jones's two-face in the middle of this bank robbery and there's no introduction to him as a character and i kind of wonder if in the longer cut there would have been you know not loads before that but that would there would have been sort of you know maybe a minute or so leading up to the kind of the robbery of the bank where you would have some establishing scenes of for his character yeah and like i think this is another example of what came before versus uh you know back in 1995 anyway like we had just come off of what jack nicholson falling into a vat of acid <laughs> Uh, Danny DeVito being a bit, uh, being abandoned by his, uh, his parents and like thrown into a sewer, uh, which, and being raised by penguins because Gotham has penguins in their sewers for some reason. <laughs> and, um, and Michelle Pfeiffer being pushed out of a building and being, I guess, experiencing brain damage to the point that she becomes a homicidal maniac. And so I, again, the, the, uh, the economy of the storytelling, you know, paring down the two-faced story to like a, a news bite. It makes sense to me. 
Um, but ultimately, this is the problem with having two villains. Mm. Because how many origin stories are you going to have to like cram into this? And like, I think that this is oddly a lesson we still haven't learned. It's interesting because I feel like this is actually the first of two times that Two Face has gotten shafted in a Batman movie. <laughs> Um, and I think of the Dark Knight because he gets completely overshadowed by Heath Ledger, who gives a great performance. But by the once he becomes Two Face, who cares? You know, <laughs> like he's kind of like left alone, and kind of like the plot moves on without him. And I feel like that's kind of the same thing here. I think Two Face is enough of a compelling character, and I think the animated series proved this that he kind of deserves his own movie. And then, and like Hollywood just won't allow that to happen. Uh, yeah, so you get, he gets reduced to this cackling, <laughs> this cackling madman half the time. But at the very least, at least he as a villain factors in heavily to the theme of duality as well. And since he's a through line for that theme, I can appreciate that character. So the Batman character is nearly 80 years old now, and over the years his story's been retold and reinterpreted in comics, TV series, cartoons and feature films. When we were preparing for this show, you made an interesting point about the opportunities that this gives people working with the character, so I wondered if you wanted to uh, elaborate on that. I grew up on comics. Um, I'm still a huge comic guy, and uh, as a kid, if you were a Marvel fan, Marvel always got the short end of the stick when it came to like media property. Uh, the two, the three biggest claims of fame were the Incredible Hulk TV show, the Spider-Man cartoon, and the X-Men cartoon. But outside of that, you'd be hard pressed to find any interpretation that captured the imagination of the public outside of the comics. And Batman and Superman in particular have always benefited that from the get-go. And Batman had the serial, Superman had the serial, Superman had the TV show, Batman had the TV show in the 60s. Superman's had plays about him. He had, of course, the Christopher Reeve movies, the Michael Keaton movies. Like, there's just so many interpretations of these characters that exist outside of the comics. And so I think for that reason, I am one of those people that when I see changes made to the character, or at the very least, when I see cosmetic changes made to the character, I don't get too upset about that because I want to see how they play, play, play that out. And I think that there's two ways that this can go. You can either have something like Batman Forever, which is just kind of ripping off of a previous version of the character and just paying homage to it. And then you can have something like Man of Steel, which is kind of really going way out of the norm for this character, making him kind of a self-serving prick. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when the character feels false to me. It's all about the character motivations with me. Like, how do you get me to this point and make me care about this character? And if I don't care about the character by the end of the film, um, that's a problem. But I feel that the DC characters are unique in that way that they cosmetically, their different interpretations make a huge difference. Yeah, I think that the DC characters, like, you know, there's a lot of wiggle room. The Marvel characters don't have that yet. And like, I think that after this current crop of Marvel films, they'll be allowed to do that for better and for worse. But as any comic book fan can tell you, like the way that these things typically work is there's a traditional take on the character that people love. And then someone will go a little bit outside of the box and then people will be like, oh, that's kind of cool. I like that. And then someone else will go way outside of the box and people will like, no, I was about to use a curse word. People will, people will (laughs) fall over it. And so what always happens is we revert back to the traditional interpretation. And, um, the way that the comics are being translated to movies now, I feel like we're going to start feeling, we're going to start seeing that cycle. You know, and logically, you think a character that is 80 years old needs to adapt, needs to change, because the the world in which they're operating in has changed. What appeals to people changes, and just get really dull. I, you know, if the character just stayed within a very 
tight, narrow confine, you know, adapt or die, as they say. Yeah, and I think people actually tend to forget that, like, every interpretation of these characters that we, some of which we, like, hold, like, as, like, the best interpretations were a reaction. Um, you know, the original Superman, like, used to beat up, like, Union guys, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and then, like, you know, then we transitioned into the 70s, and, you know, people may not believe this now because of something like Man of Steel, but, like, that Superman in the 70s, that Richard Donner film, was, sorry, was a direct reaction to the to the times. Like, they were trying to give us, like, this more realistic Superman. It doesn't feel like that now because we've, we've moved on again. And so now, I guess, slightly cynical Superman is kind of the way to go. <laughs> but I, I'm not comfortable with it, but I, I got my Superman. I got my Christopher Reeve, and I kind of feel like that's the same thing with this Batman Forever. Like, it's I've gotten my Batman on, like, in all the different palettes of Batman that I could have, I've, I've, I've been able to experience. So I'm okay with Joel Schumacher's Batman, and especially since the characters are pretty spot on, I kind of feel like, never mind the backdrop, but the way that the things that motivate them kind of harken back to the original source material. Right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the exploding helicopter action. On the Simplistic Reviews podcast, we talk movies. We talk TV. We talk. Hello, Julie, what the heck are you doing? Trying to make our spots sound more exciting by adding explosions. Yeah, I'm pretty sure you could have got the point across with sound effects, not the real thing. Download the show on iTunes or at simplisticreviews.blogspot.com. I'm sure your insurance company will cover that. No, they won't. No, they probably won't. We're back, and now we're looking at the exploding helicopter action, and we don't have long to wait as the chopper fireball occurs during the film's opening set piece. Two-Face steals an enormous bank vault by using a helicopter to rip it out of a building. Batman, who is trapped inside the vault, manages to free himself and somehow climbs up the chain to the helicopter. Bats ends up in front of the pilot's windshield, prompting Two-Face to fire off a volley of shots from his pistol. The gunfire kills the pilot, so Two-Face sets the chopper on a collision course with a huge statue, jams the controls and bails out using a parachute. Batman also leaps clear, falling into the ocean below seconds before the whirlybird crashes into the Gotham landmark and explodes. Troy, what did you make of the helicopter explosion here? You know, actually, if I could for a second, I want to talk about the Statue of Liberty. (laughs) (laughs) Feel free, because I've got that as one of my notes as well. So uh, let's deal with what on earth the Statue of Liberty is doing in this film. Yeah, like, this is like, I feel like this might be the second DC film where, like, someone just plopped the Statue of Liberty into a fictional city. Because I, I think in Superman the movie, they also fly across the Statue of Liberty, but they're in Metropolis. I'm not quite sure why the Statue of Liberty is in Gotham City. I, maybe it's not the Statue of Liberty. Maybe it didn't come from France. I don't know. <laughs> well, if you um, if you look closely in the uh, written in the headband of the uh, of the Statue of Liberty, it says Gotham. So they um, they are trying to make it clear that this isn't the more famous uh, cousin Statue of Liberty <laughs> to this. So uh, you know, I, I guess it's possible that you know France sent over another one and it, it went to reside in Gotham. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but on uh, onto the uh, exploding helicopter. I find it interesting that, like, uh, the entire sequence, of course, is a buildup. It's interesting because Tommy Lee Jones constantly complains throughout the film that Batman just won't die. <laughs> but he, he really doesn't really try to ever kill him. And this helicopter explosion is an example of that. <laughs> but I also think it's interesting that, like, uh, when the blades of the chopper hit the Statue of Liberty, it kind of tears it up like it's paper mache. 
Mm. Like I don't know if you noticed that too, but like it's just it's it's just a, all these weird aesthetic choices, like all these weird visual decisions that are made to like keep it campy, and I've noticed that as well. I mean, overall, I think it's a cool helicopter explosion. It's uh, I like I feel like usually helicopter explosions are done to advance the plot in some way, shape, or form, even if it's in a little bit. And in this particular case, um, it's really to end the action sequence so the Batman can go left and Two Face can go right, and that they can come back together in the end. But I always get stuck on that Statue of Liberty. I'm like, what is what is this? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of statues in Gotham, too. The helicopter explosion in this film comes at the end of a really elaborate uh, sequence, you know, because we have the whole theft of the of the bank vault, and there's a there's a sort of a great sort of sequence where we see Tommy Lee Jones trying to sort of escape with that, and they fly through this glass billboard dragging the bank vault and you know endangering sort of batman who's dangling under there and then you know then there's the whole business we think we see the sort of the pilot of the helicopter being shot and so then there's no one to fly the helicopter um so there's a very sort of elaborate build-up to the uh, helicopter explosion but i did notice one small detail which i think is is completely unique for any exploding helicopter i've ever seen is that before uh, tommy lee jones bails out of the helicopter he jams the controls of the helicopter using what appears to be a steering lock and you know i i didn't i didn't didn't know that helicopters had steering locks i don't you know i guess people might want to steal helicopters so you know you need to lock the controls when you're uh, when you park them at the uh, at the end of your journey but i've never seen one before and certainly never seen one involved in the explosion of a helicopter so you know i think credit to this film for giving us something completely new yeah no i think actually yeah that's a very good point i it's I, i've seen the film probably quite a few times so i didn't even know i i didn't take time to notice that again but i'm glad you mention it i will point out though if batman can pull a hearing aid out and like uh, and unlock a safe why couldn't he just like break off a club on a steering wheel <laughs> and steer them all to safety but well it would have deprived us of a helicopter explosion so that's true. Uh, i'm yeah. you know let's be grateful he didn't have a flash of inspiration at that particular moment but you know the actual sort of explosion itself as well i thought was you know fabulous you know it's a really huge and we get to see it replayed from multiple angles and we see the wreckage crashing down the the statue of liberty or the gotham version of it so yeah there was no expense sort of spared and they were obviously trying to you know make a real sort of statement with this opening action set piece and uh yeah i think they pulled it off uh, really well i actually think the opening in general is it's explosive like you know like you know not not to <laughs> no pun intended but like it really is it hits the ground running and it's like you know it was such a deliberate statement that this, this is not tim burton's batman you know like it just like the action the way that it moved to move from shot to shot and just like the pacing of it was like like just like schumacher putting a stamp on it for better or worse okay Thanks, Troy. I think that just about wraps things up for this show. So uh, I just want to say uh, a quick thanks for joining me today. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Well, it was great. Don't forget, you can read our review of Batman Forever and lots of other films on the Exploding Helicopter website. If there's a film you'd like us to cover on a future show, then send me a message on Twitter or Facebook. We'll be back soon. But until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. <laughs>
This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.